I'm Piercy Janewell, and you're listening to Unsubscribed. Every episode, I sit down with business leaders to help you question everything you thought you knew about marketing. If you enjoy this show, please do subscribe and leave a review on YouTube or your favorite podcast player. Now, on to this episode. All right, my guest today is Pascal Saint-Jean. You know, there's certain people in Ottawa, in the Ottawa business community where you just know their name. And Pascal is definitely one of those people. He's a serial entrepreneur and executive coach and advisor. And he's currently the president of 3IQ, uh, which is Canada's largest digital asset investment fund manager with over two and a half billion dollars in assets under management. He also happens to be uh, my executive coach and is on Mac's board of advisors. So Pascal, so great to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. A pleasure, Pierce, to join you. And uh, it's been a long time coming. Right on. Well, you know, we have a lot of ground to cover here today. So I'd love to start with, you know, your entrepreneurial journey. You know, take us back like... Where did that come from for you? And, and where does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Absolutely. So it, it kind of runs a little bit in the family. So way, way back, my grandfather had several small businesses up North Quebec. Uh, so my, my father grew up in that environment, very, very entrepreneurial, like so small, uh, small, basically uh, business, local businesses that, that help with uh with home building and a little restaurant and those kind of things. And then my dad later on in his career, uh, although he did uh, leave up North Young, worked in the mines, but also always had that entrepreneurial spirit, started a small store where I grew up, Northern Elliott Lake. So I kind of grew up, I joke around, I was chief marketing officer at three, where they let me play with toys in the small city. All the kids on the street would want to come check out the cool stuff. And, and there we go. My dad starts making sales. But, um, but I used to help my dad with inventory, operate the cash. I just love running the numbers. Uh, so it was just, I think, just brought up in that spirit. And and at the same time, over the course of, of my career, I think uh, when I look back at that early young age, when the mines closed in Elliott Lake, again, it's a very small town, the whole economy had to shut down and my business, my, my dad had to shut down his business. And I think as a young child, seeing the impact of being employed by someone else and the impact that it has at you don't have that control. I think it just guided me to wanting to just be my own boss and start my own businesses and, and be in control. So it's both that seeing both of those uh, being exposed to it as a kid. And at the same time, I see business as less risky than having a job. So I think that's where it comes from. And I, I just always had the desire to do that from the early days. Yeah, that's awesome. That that uh, you had that running in your family and were able to gain some of those experiences. What was your first business? So, so my my first first business uh, so back before I could even drive. So when I was when I was basically I grew up in the, in the birth of the internet. So when it was still dial up, uh, you know, I was checking Rogers Cable every day for when you know. Uh, high speed was available in my network, the, in, my, in my in my in my area when I grew up in Ottawa. The day was available. I you know paid the big bucks to get that done. But uh, I was really into technology, right? All into innovation, the birth of the internet. And I've had a close friend um, where we just learned ourselves on how to just take computers apart, 
and, and built some computers. So here we were both pretty good at sales. We were 15, both of us, um, and started just building custom computers for people in our network. So I remember, uh, you know, one summer at 15, I mean, we were making some pretty good cash and our moms were driving us around to pick up pieces to, you know, go back to his place. She, they cook us dinner. We'd go in his basement. We had all the equipment built like 15 computers that, 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 that summer. And then basically went on from there. So, so that was the first, very first small business at 15. But then soon after that is when I really got a lot more serious into starting to build sort of uh, web and custom applications when I was uh, in, in my late teens. So basically towards the end of high school, early university is when I really got into basically the Microsoft ecosystem, the web ecosystem, hosting my own servers and those kind of things. And then starting to build out websites at a very young age to local businesses. So that's how Chaos Technologies was born. And it lasted for many, many years. Um, and it evolved from a you know small web company into a custom development company. Um, because back then I was so young that I never got exposed to industry ideas. So I had a lot of friends or future mentors who were like, hey, I worked for Nortel for 10 years and then got inspired by this one idea. While I was working there, I saw a problem, right? And I think if, I, if I'm, if I'm uh, not, uh, not mistaken, that's a bit how, you know, you started Revenue Pulse and Knack is by seeing, you know, having been a marketer in the space. So for me, uh, being so young and never having had a real job, I saw custom development as a way to get exposed to different ideas. That was always the plan, right? You know, work with different clients, uh, save up some cash. And then once that mega idea comes in, convert that into more of a scale-up business. Cool. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking about building uh, computers with your friends, it sounds like a, a young Steve Jobs and, and Waz story there. Um, yeah, yeah. It, look, I mean, at that age, it uh, is, a, is a lot of great, a lot of great cash, a lot of fun. We still, I, I see them maybe once or once or twice a year now. We, uh, you know, we we each have families and other businesses and do things. But whenever we get together, we still <laughs> talk about about those days, right? Yeah, of uh, putting things together to hope that it works because yeah. the client's paying us. So yeah. It's an amazing feeling when you start that first business and make money and, and turn this idea that was really nothing into something that that people want and are going to pay you for. Exactly. And, and, and that's really at that young age where you start learning about the basic stuff of business in, in your teens in terms of customer service, in terms of sales and marketing, in terms of, 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 of scaling up, right? So in other words, cash management. So those were you know, to scale at that age was, was difficult, but it was the beginnings of understanding the cores of each part of business that really served me well for, you know, in my early twenties, when I really started work focusing on scale-ups. So, so you mentioned chaos, which is uh, kind of your first or your second business, maybe first it's official called the real, one. It's called the first yeah. real business. So, yeah. uh, and that was more of a services custom development business. Did the, is yeah. that what you're you're saying really helped you with Pixphere, which was your next company after that? And yeah. and maybe can you Pixphere was yeah? Can you talk a little bit about how that services company helped you build the technology company? Exactly. So so basically, again, like I was mentioning, not having been exposed to sp to a specific industry, um, I wasn't really the ideas guy at that point. I was like, hey, what's the sitting there in a room waiting for the next mega idea to land on, on your, 
on your lap is sometimes difficult, which is why sometimes you need a co-founder or someone who who understands the the market issue. Um, so my goal with chaos was always to be able to get exposed to market challenges by having custom solutions for clients, and that's exactly what happened with Pitchphere when uh, when our, one of one of our clients came to the table basically in the early dawn of of digital photography uh, back in the in the early two thousands where you know, the megapixels were terrible, yet your your $1,000 Kodak camera wasn't really great. But in the early 2000s, the professional DSLRs, so basically the big Canons and the big Nikons, started to really come out at a megapixel rate that was actually better than film. And that opened up a whole different landscape in business. So, so think about, um, you know, back then with film, the reality is as a professional photographer, your businesses were limited. You had either, you were either a wedding photographer, you were taking school pictures, maybe you were a high-end photographer from an art perspective, and then maybe you were on a magazine or, or, or working for a newspaper, right? So you were working for National Geographic, which back then was like the king of, of all photography jobs, right? You get to travel the world and try to capture wildlife and, and document that. So the reality of a professional photographer was 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 known as certain things and then digital came around and all of a sudden a whole world of businesses came up so the concept you know when when um who eventually became my my, uh, my co-founder Corey, came to me uh through contact saying i have a uh, i'm trying to start a business uh local in town in calabogie motorsports so that was opening up he's like i got the exclusive rights to basically take action shots of all the participants coming in and I want to try to create an emotional sale. So the concept, right, back then, people were already trying to do this. They were taking a lot of pictures of different uh, amateur sports and, and trying to upsell parents afterwards. So the normal process was this. Hey, Pierce, um, your kids are playing hockey. I got some action shots. Here's, an, here's my website. The pictures will be uploaded in five days. Please come and visit and buy something. By then... The emotional mm-hmm. sale is gone, mm-hmm. and will you? You've moved on to the next tournament, right. right? So, whereas you go to Wonderland back then, right? They, they, those were photography systems that were all wired and and fixed in place, so they were easy to operate. So you go on the ride, you get a bad picture of you in the wind, or or or, or while you're about to get sick on the ride, right? And then you get off, they, you know, and they're on the screen there. Terrible megapixels. You look like like hell, but you buy the thirty dollar picture because it's right there. You're excited. That's the emotional sale. So the concept of Pixphere was how do we create the emotional sale workflow? So think about the the roller coaster experience in a live dynamic ecosystem. So you're out there with race cars. You're out there in a gymnastics tournament. You're out there in a hockey tournament. You got shots from everywhere. You got tournaments happening in different areas. So pictures have to be beamed somewhere, organized, and made available in a point of sale almost instantly. And that's the problem we solved. Mm, That's awesome. So people would go on this website, be able to find their event, and then be able to buy the picture from there? Even faster than that. So that was the that was the aftermarket, right? Yeah. So even faster than that. So we were able to, we had a, a wireless partner, so a hardware partner, uh, as basically it was called YPix. It was a huge hard drive with a huge antenna and a built-in router system. So basically you plugged your camera into that. 
So you didn't have to swap picture cards because I had a huge hard drive. So you could take thousands of pictures that would wirelessly beam it to a local station that the photographer would own. Uh, basically, our, our software was installed on that. And we would have multiple ways of rapidly sorting through basically barcode recognition, uh, optical image recognition, if it was a, like a marathon, or rapid tagging. So if you had an employee, so literally you're done the tournament or your kid gets off, you could go to a point of, of sale terminal, which we integrated with. We had software for that and buy on the spot. Oh, cool. So it was literally the 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 same workflow yeah. although way yeah. more complicated because of the live action and the and sort of the the wireless yeah. capabilities as a roller coaster and then yes there was the website afterwards where you could go and buy posters and all these other things but the live emotional yeah. sale was yeah. the goal of the company and those point of sale systems were those to buy the digital picture or would it actually print something out so that would be up to, to the photographer to decide. So we had some clients in the U.S. that had like the big business was really in the U.S., right? So amateur sports is way, you know, you look, you go there, you watch a high school football team as a larger stadium than a CFL team, right? So that, so the big business is out there. So they, some had like an 18 wheel truck trailer full of terminals and three or four photographers on staff running the software so we we could work on those live print you could just order it and pay and it would be delivered later so i would it would we would create that flexibility for for the photographer running his or her business so the reality is the the we realize that um the small four by sixes or the five by sevens or the digital cd was really what was selling um, because they wanted it now, the bigger stuff like the posters or all these other things, we could sell it live at the terminal. But basically, the clients were okay having a drop shipped later because it was easy to say we want to make sure the quality is there. So it's better that it gets printed somewhere where it's not dirty and and, cool. and full of dust, right? So so capture the sale, get the money, deliver later on on the higher end products. That's awesome. So, so you had these two companies, um, you know, can you, can you share kind of what happened to each of them and, and what would you say is kind of your, your biggest learning from each of those companies? Yeah. So, so chaos got rolled in into, into PicSphere, though the reality was that was always the mandate, right? The mandate was, I want to have a service providing company until we find the idea. So we had saved uh, 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 some cash on the balance sheet to really try to invest in that next company. So Pixphere was a venture-backed company. So we had gotten investors. We were all very, very young and met my mentor, which we'll talk about in some of the future questions in terms of how I got into, into coaching and peer groups. But basically, that's how I really learned a lot about business. So at that age, I would say I was a, a really strong engineer with a vision, good at sales, but not necessarily a great business operator. So we learned the the hard way in with Pixphere in the sense of there was another player in that space who um, who basically had all the connections with Kodak and Fujifilm and basically they had static software so let's say you were a, a studio photographer at Loblaws or anywhere else they had the software that powered all those terminals and the print jobs and everything so they were a big fish in a niche industry but pretty significant niche industry. And we were the first player to come in to even think of competing with these guys, right? And we were bringing that sort of real-time live action stuff. So our technology was better, 
But that's when we really started to learn the importance of industry influence uh, and, and, and product market fit. So our technology was, uh, was superior, but their, their technology was deployed in way more areas. So think like the iPhone is everywhere, right? So let's build an app for the Microsoft phone ecosystem back seven years ago, right? Well, no one's buying the app because there's no Microsoft phones deployed, right? Build an app for the app for, for the iPhone, you have more opportunities of getting customers. So, so they were already everywhere and people were used to their interface. So, so we struggled at first to try to compete because people were just used to their interface. They wanted our, our high-speed sort of workflow. They wanted to do what we were doing. And companies that were just focused on sort of like the starting a business in that space were choosing us. Those who were ingrained in the space we were having a hard time getting that penetration. Um, so basically we ended up uh, uh, integrating into their software. So lessons learned there of basically don't fight the trend and find, even though it was a gut to the ego, we thought we had better tech, better, better interface. We ended up integrating with their competitor software so that you could use their software, but then use our high speed sort of systems in the background. So we, we eventually ended up uh, running into two things, which will uh, lead me to further questions. One is the understanding that when the dot-com bubble bursted, there was no more VC money to be had. So our plan was always to scale and get the next round and scale and get the next round. And that basically kind of evaporated when the dot-com bubble evaporated. So we had to really learn to honker down, manage cash flow and keep growing. So that's a huge lesson learned on cash management. And, and being aware of macro trends, in other words, like what's happening outside of your industry and the world in general, and that how, how is that going to impact your business? And I know, you know, I talk a lot about that now as a coach, because that's the experience that I lived. And eventually after the integration, we were able to sell the, the technology to them. Um, so to have some form of exit that way. So again, strategy, you know, product market fit, you know, understanding that, you know, first mover advantage is huge when they're, they're kind of dominating the space. So how to partner instead of trying to compete and then macro uh, understanding of what's happening in the economy and what's happening in the, in the real world that may impact your business and your industry is, su is super important. So all those lessons learned took those to heart into the next venture. That's awesome. And uh, so you, you, you know, you ran chaos, you sold PicSphere. Now, you know, I, I always think about as an entrepreneur, I, I haven't sold any of my companies, but if I ever did, what would I do next? So I'm curious what you did next after you sold your company. So, so, the, so the, the, there's the pens, right? There's selling where you could say, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm done, I'm good. And then there's the selling with a, you know, repay the investors, right? Um, and basically keep a little bit and then, okay, now I have a a safety net to try to start the next venture. So it's it it uh, so Pixfire allowed me to do that to give myself some time to think about what's next without having the the high pressure of getting a job, right? So it wasn't life changing, but it was career changing opportunities because all of a sudden I had built a strong network, I had tremendous experience, I had confidence in the VC space that you know they invested in us. So all of a sudden credibility there, um, and and a network in Ottawa, and then now some cash to to wait and reflect. So that's what I did a little bit is that wait and reflect instead of jumping in the next thing. Didn't take too, too long, about six months, but I took my time to say, what are the next mega trends? Um, and, and what do I want to play in? 
Um, and that's how the next company was born. And that's Synergy. So yeah, that's so so before that it was called so chaos rolled into Pixphere, yep. and then Synergic was a merger of a pre, of a comp, of two companies. So my next company was called Citadel Rock Online Communities. Okay. I I did not found it. Um, so it was already created by a local entrepreneur. It was a year old. So basically, through my 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 timing of of looking at the next mega trends, two things stuck out to me. One was open source. And the other one was collaboration and sort of uh, knowledge management, right? So this was pre-Facebook, but all we could, all we knew is that Web two was starting to come into play. So online video, online social networks, uh, company knowledge bases, all these things were starting to get built into the next trend of collaborative web. Which Web one, one point, it was static, like you're creating a website that's really just a flyer. But Web two was all about sort of the sort of the using the web for for collaboration and knowledge management. So those were the big mega trends because my previous company was, you know, the old thinking of, you know, your IP, patent everything, own own of that. And that's what that's the only thing that's valuable to all of a sudden open source back then when I started that, today open source rules the world. Back then it was very controversial business model, right? VCs and others were saying, why would you give the code away Versus we knew the impact of collaborating, of decentralization, and the power of, of openness, and then building business models on top of that. So what are the real values? Is recreating the basic code really driving customer value? Or do we open source the base layers that everyone needs and operates and build innovative value on top of that? And that's what you sell and that's what you compete. So that was, what the, that was the premise of Citadel Rock was to utilize open source technologies and try to to tackle the enterprise knowledge, you know, social and knowledge management space. And, and that's what we grew, myself and my business partner for many years, uh, until we eventually decided to merge uh, to form Synergic many years later. That's awesome. And, and so going into your third business, I mean, is this where you really started to hone in on that operator side of things? Like, yeah, 100%. And, and how did you learn how to do that, right? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, they don't necessarily sign up to be CEO. They're, they're, they probably know a market or a space or they're a really talented individual contributor. I know at yeah. least I was. And, and so I'd love to hear your story of how you evolved as a leader and, and how you did that. So really you go back to, so that's a great question. Um, and, I, and I go back to uh, Pixphere. And when I, we, we were able to attract a, a, a fractional CFO. So we were a bunch of 20 year olds and we wanted some adult supervision. And, and especially on the finance front, because we wanted to raise potentially more capital and just manage the, be good stewards of the capital we had from that our investors gave to us. And, and, and back then, so if you really think about it at, at the Pixar stage, most of our early hires were people that I knew. Um, and then, and then the, the more senior people in my life were our investors. So all of a sudden I'm stuck in the middle of, you know, when I have doubts or when I'm unsure, you know, you don't go talk to your friends about it because they're also your employees. So you don't go and stir that pot and you don't go to the, your investors saying, yeah, I'm 22. I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. You don't go do that either. Right. Now, some would say some investors want to mentor you. 
um, which is which is the case. But back then, there was that sense of I, I need to know because I, you know, I'm, I'm young and and everyone's entrusted in me, both their their careers and their money. So there was a lot of pressure. And and our CFO Chuck, who came in, was able to attract. He was he was the ex CFO Corel. You know, led them through the IPO. Basically, worked with Copeland on a daily basis, and then eventually sold out and decided to work with three to four young startups that he thought had great promise and wanted to mentor them. So I was able to be one of those startups that he worked with. Um, but he became way more than a CFO. He became a mentor. And every Friday he'd come in and I'd have a cup of coffee and we'd chat. And I got really lucky because he was a very humble mentor. I say that because sometimes you have individuals who are like, I, I know it all, just do what I say and, and don't ask questions, right? Chuck, on the other hand, was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire would drive up with his Jetta, his lumberjack shirt, yeah, you know, all he, you know, and and just humble guy would come in, do the work, you know, laugh with us, but give us guidance. So he's the one who said, Pascal, like I really appreciate you asking these questions. I want to help you. I want to be part of your team, but you need to surround yourself with more individuals. And he's the one who introduced me to peer group and peer groups and coaching. So that's how I really began my journey of what I call going from a you know a, an engineer with an idea to becoming more of a strategic you know, leader, to then really becoming a leader who understands strategy, how to develop people, the importance of culture, understanding finance. So becoming the operator and the translator. So a great leader is one who could is not the expert marketer, not the expert in sales, not the expert in finance, but understands enough to be the translator. So I could speak with a CFO, I could speak with a marketer, I could speak with a head of engineering and be able to 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 understand what they're trying to achieve and link that to our vision and also spread that vision to the rest of the organization. That's what I'm really, really good at. Um, And and make decisions because in the end, leaders need to make decisions. So he inspired me to, to, to begin on that journey. So I started off by just building a small peer group of people I knew. But back then we were all in the technology space, all in the early startup space. So I, I joked that we were high-fiving bad ideas because everyone thinks the same way. Even though we work in the same business, we're in the same industry, same business model, primarily, same way of thinking. So it's just this echo chamber of, yeah, so of course we're smart, right? Um, but my real learnings came when I started joining organizations like Entrepreneurs Organization and Tech Canada, where I really started to get exposure of different business individuals from different industries at different levels. And that's really where my my uh, my, op- my operating skills, my leadership skills, my way of thinking, my self-awareness just skyrocketed. So so were you part, can you, can you explain what Tech Canada is? Because I, I feel like a lot of people don't know that. And, and the name itself is a bit yeah. confusing. So, so, uh, so Tech Canada is a peer CEO peer group organization. So basically it's meant to develop leaders uh, by coming together in a group of 14 to 16 different CEOs uh, from different industries, from different backgrounds that come together. And, and the promise is how do we develop these individuals or how does tech support that through coaching? So there's a mentor or a leader of the group. Then there's professional speakers that come in and educate us on different on different topics. And then there's the group itself. So how do we you know, you know, support each other and, and talk about our challenges, talk about our opportunities, and have ideas, challenging uh, discussions and debates with fellow with fellow members. 
that come from the business sector. Because in the, in the end, right, when I was younger, I didn't believe this because everyone in tech believes that tech is different. The reality is every business. And I've been able to coach and mentor and advise various different types of industries over my career now. And when you remove the product or service, every business is relatively the same, right? And that's what that promise of Tech Canada is. So the, it stands for the executive committee. It's been in Canada for 40 years. It's been in North America for almost 60 uh, and was founded many, many years ago. They've rebranded the U.S. because tech was being confounded with technology. But really, it's a it's an organization for any leader of any industry looking to up their game in business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I can share from my own experience. You know, I, I, I'm part of Tech Canada as well. And you know, I remember asking Pascal what what the other types of businesses in there. And I, at the time, I was running a, a marketing agency, so I wanted to hear, oh, there's other marketing agencies in there. But I learned the most from, you know, the people who are running plumbing businesses or heating and cooling. And it, I, I think, to your point, I, it all comes down to the people. Uh, in a company, and and I found a lot of our problems were very similar. Absolutely, I, I mean, I learned the most about culture building from someone in my peer group back in the day who ran a boutique hotel, right? Because his challenges were were different. Like he joked around, he's like, uh, and I know that's not what builds culture, but he was saying, I can't afford free meals and bean bags everywhere, right? Like, so so how do you engage minimum wage staff? to care about the customer, to care about the business, to really live the culture. So, so again, his, his building the culture for him became that competitive edge, right? So, so as a, as a, as an IT company or an IT executive, you hear that you're thinking, okay, wow, you can learn a lot from that. Or like to your point, someone operating in a low margin business, right? Like plumbing and heating, all of a sudden you're in a high margin business saying, well, these people have their, their stuff in order when it comes to cash management and balance sheet management. So how to imagine if we did that on top of that, we would be unstoppable. So you learn so much from different industries and different people's takes on the same challenges. So when you think of kind of the stages of running a business in terms of the maturity level of the CEO from kind of being a freelancer to having maybe your first few employees to growing. At what point do you think uh, business leaders out there should think about joining a CEO group or a peer group? So I was quite proud. I would say the earlier, the better. And I was quite proud to play a role. My, my vision originally in Ottawa, and we were able to achieve that, is to be the first city in North America and maybe maybe in the world, but I don't know enough about, about Europe or Asia in terms to know of, 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 of their configuration. But I know we're the first city in North America to have a peer group structure through Invest Ottawa and then through Tech Canada. And you could have a solopreneur be part of a peer group, which I helped train and build the systems out and and train the other uh the other coaches at invest ottawa so you could start there and you can migrate to a uh a small business group in an io and then a you know a growing business group in tech and then a ceo group in tech so there's a path of learning because the the reality is a solopreneur right really running a business that pays him or her a salary has different challenges than a business that has 
25 people is different than a business that has 150 people with a leadership team and is different than a company that's striving to become public, yeah. right? So, yeah. so it's not fair to say, well, once you're big enough, then you should have access to this because the learning needs to happen earlier, but you also don't need to worry about how to operate a publicly traded company when you're a solopreneur. So how do you create that peer-to-peer path? And I will say that, you know, some people will say, well, how do you learn from someone who's also a solopreneur? The reality is the challenges there are not necessarily business focus is very much mental focus. It's the challenge of getting your family and friends on board. The, the challenges of when do I let go of my job for some people who are still working, trying to start a business. Those are, those are real personal challenges that when you have no one else to talk to tend to blow up 90% of most businesses. But if you get through that hump and you get to that next stage, you know, you're, you're making enough money to start hiring, to quit your job, the challenges become different. So over and over again, at each leg, you learn from each other. It's mostly about staying mentally positive and, and, and overcoming challenges that normally blow up a business when not tackled early enough. It's awesome. All right. I want to switch gears a little bit here now to talk sure. about Bitcoin. I know that you're big into Bitcoin and uh, I'd love to hear maybe your story about Bitcoin, how you found it why you're a believer uh, in Bitcoin and and your kind of personal story on that. Absolutely. I think all the stories of my life come back and play into this, right? So I'm going to go way back. And I did a a talk on this uh, in the past. Um, I should probably bring it out again and do a webinar about this or something. And I I call it how tracking numbers changed my life, right? So I go back to to, uh, my, my time in Elliott Lake, when you know the mines blew up because of uranium prices had gone way too high, and all of a sudden, oh sorry, way too low, and and it wasn't no, it was no longer viable to mine at that stage. And then there was also political pressure after Chernobyl in Russia to say, you know what, maybe nuclear is not a great option for for power plants. All those things were happening in the '80s. So if you were working in that industry and you tracked anything macro, you knew it was coming. So when I got older in life. Right. I started looking back. Could we have predicted what happened to my family? Could I have predicted that that whole industry was going to blow up and that we probably my dad should have probably sold this business and we should have sold the house years and years before that. So because it really had a, it had a big impact on our on our family. So the answer was yes. When you start looking at prices of uranium, you chart that you look at macro forces. It totally was predictable. So the reason I say that is because in my next business, right, um, basically the dot com bubble bursted. My next business, literally, I have pictures of us changing our business model because when we formed Citadel Rock, we were going to launch in New York at the what it used to be called the Web 2.0 Expo. It doesn't exist anymore. It's it's a different show now. But we were going there to launch and meet with VCs. And we were supposed to be a product company. And literally, as we're driving there, the and, and again, the, the 08 market collapsed. Like the Basically, the, the great financial crisis happened. So clearly, I'm starting businesses whenever there's great economic collapse. I'm just, I guess, good at that timing my, my, my business startups there. But all of a sudden, we're like, oh, my God, the VCs are calling us saying, don't think we're going to meet Monday. So we're literally driving to New York and my business partner sitting beside me printing new banners, you know, to because we're going to become a service company now. Like, there's no money to become a product company right now. It's become an open source service provider. And we are doing that as we're driving to New York City. So I, I, I say all that because I became very in tuned 
with macro forces. And then after my, my eventual exit synergic, I had significant um, money to start investing and I wanted to start learning on my own as well. So you, you dive into that, you dive into all these macro forces that impacted my past previous career and my whole career, you get a good picture of what's going on, right? So you add to that my open source background. So I heard of Bitcoin in the early, early days because I used to go to Portland to open source conferences and really be in deep with the open source community. And Bitcoin is really an amalgamation of technology and an asset. It's the first thing in the world really that it's come it's from both. So you either come at it from an investment perspective or you come at it from a technology perspective. I came at it from a technology perspective because it was decentralized, it was open source, it was, you know, it was designed to give back power to, to individuals. So I came at it from that space in the early days and it was too early for me. So as an investor, I'm more of a let's wait for the risk to disappear. As a technologist, I was like, this is really cool stuff. And let's let's track it. So that's how I came to learn about Bitcoin. Um, how I came to invest into Bitcoin was when I really started, like I said, did the research, looked at macro trends, look at where the world is going, look at my personal belief of investing. And that's when I decided to go pretty heavy in 2016, when I felt that technology risk was um, was starting to, to, to lessen. And when I had a really personal, strong belief of, of where we were at, from a macro perspective. So for me, it became the next mega trend. And uh, here we are today. Yeah. And now, now you're president of 3IQ. Can you, <laughs> can you share a little bit more about, you know, what is 3IQ? And, and I, I'd love to hear too, some of the things, if you can share that you're working on and, and what gets you excited about the future of, of Bitcoin. Absolutely. So so here, I, I, because we are a regulated entity, I can't talk about specific products, but I could definitely tell you what our mission statement is. And our goal was always to try to bring Bitcoin and crypto to the, to the masses. So the founding of, of 3IQ is an amazing story where, again, our founder, Fred Pai, uh, really took, uh, took it upon himself to, like, like any entrepreneur, uh, risk, risk it to try to say, you know what, the people of Canada deserve a, a, a regulated a Bitcoin product that you can invest in through your tax-free savings account, your RSP, or any other brokerage firm. And, and until uh, 3IQ pulled it off, it just didn't exist. So you had to go on different exchanges and people weren't really aware. And when you buy through exchanges, you understand that there's always those um, security concerns of, do you leave it on the exchange? Do you go into cold storage? So, so created a regulated product makes everyone more comfortable of, you know what, we take care of custody. We take care of all of that. We take care of all the headaches. You just have to go to your brokerage platform, type in one of our products and, and invest in crypto easy, safely. Uh, and, uh, and and it's, it's, just, it's just been an amazing ride to have joined them through, again, my, my consulting career. So where are we going with this into the future is to continue to innovate. I can't go into the details, but we're going to continue to bring innovations into the market to make crypto accessible to investors of all kinds throughout Canada, but also different uh, areas around the world. So we have presence in the US, presence in uh, in uh, Latin America, in uh, Dubai, and soon other countries as well. I can't announce yet, but coming. Awesome. That's great. Uh, lots of exciting stuff happening there. And uh, especially, yeah, you look at the macro of what's happening in the world. And, and I think 
Um, it, it's going to become an increasingly important technology. And maybe to answer your question in terms of where I personally, this is my view and, and everyone has a different view, but you know, coming at it from a technology perspective, right? When you see adoption, right? So there's a, in engineering, there's a term called Metcalfe's law, which is basically an equation of networks. And I learned that in the early days as I was, you know, studying decentralized systems and engineering, and then in my open source world, right? Building social enterprise, social networks and studying laws of adoption. My business partner, Nelson, did a lot of research uh, in his, uh, in his uh, MBA, in, well, basically his technology MBA equivalent on the valuation of social networks. So the value that, that takes place as more and more nodes get created, so more and more people, and then all of a sudden the activity volume on those nodes, right? So that was back in like the, you know, the mid-2000s, understanding network effect, understanding the value of that. So fast forward to, to Bitcoin and, and, and in general, if you take the technological approach and you just monitor trend, adoption, usage, and flow, that by itself, when you study math and you study that, gives you a great picture of where it's going into the future without giving any price predictions, you could see the trend. The trend is growing, adoption rate is growing, and it's becoming a more and more important technology for the world as we move into sort of the, 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 the future macro trends and as we see what's happening in the news and all that stuff, Bitcoin becomes definitely an important technology and asset for the world all over. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Uh, great insight for sure. So th this next section, you know, is kind of a rapid fire section here that we ask everybody. The first one is what's one marketing trend that you would unsubscribe from? So, so <laughs> this may be a little controversial, but uh, uh, I have a hard time with Twitter these days. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm slowly unsubscribing to Twitter. Yeah, it's uh, not a ton of positive stuff happening over there, I find as well. Yeah. But uh, okay, that's a good one. Second one, is email dead? Uh, no. Uh, no. In my, in my world, back in the day, I was you know, we were trying to create systems to make email obsolete um, in terms of how we collaborate. But email is always... Uh, is so critical in terms of external collaboration, internal collaboration, and even clearly from a marketing perspective, we, when we look at the success that NAC and others are having. So I would say, no, it's not dead. Although my purest of purest heart as a collaboration expert say, please don't use email for internal work, like purposes, like use other tools to communicate, but email is still very relevant in, in today's world. At NAC, we're all about work-life balance. What do you do for fun? Yes, so so I I love golfing. I love you know, love traveling. Uh, before all of this, we just recently came back from a trip, my wife and I. So definitely, travel golf is a passion of mine. I've been playing for twenty plus years, so it's one of those sports that I just want to take to that next level. And of course, uh, hanging out with with both personal friends, but also business connections. I always love expanding my network, getting to see different people's views and uh, and just learning from others. So for me, continuous learning is probably, as much as I love golf and traveling, continuously learning and learning from others and, and getting and getting uh, insights from other people's perspective is definitely a something that I'm passionate about, even though for the average people, it may say, well, that's not 
a lot of fun, but for me, it's, I just love getting other people's points of view and learning from others. Awesome. Who is one person you admire in the business community and why? So there are, there are two, uh, of course, there's external people which you, you've, you've, you've never met. And then there's, there's people close, uh, close to, to your life. So the person, my, my close mentor that I, that I talked about, you know, Chuck was definitely one I admire locally. He had a huge impact on, on my career. He guided me uh, in, 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 in making very hard decisions. So, you know, definitely a shout out to him. Uh, I'll always be grateful for everything he's done. For me, of course, the classic is, is Elon. Um, and basically, uh, you know, the guy's running three, maybe four companies, and every one of them is disrupting their industry. Uh, when you look at the story after PayPal, actually even before PayPal, he sold another one before PayPal. It's it would have been easy to just you know not to take a stab at anyone, but I look at for example uh, Paul Allen. You know, unfortunately he's passed away, so uh, rest in peace, Paul. But after Microsoft hit it big, Paul just said, you know what, it was a great run, and went on a, let's buy some sports teams, let's buy a yacht, let's live life. And that's great, right? He, he deserved that and, you know, in, and invested in a lot of startups. And I'm sure he's done a lot of great things, but Elon could have done that after PayPal. And I would say his career just got started after PayPal. Mm -hmm. So when you look back, when all is said and done, the legacy and impact that he will have had on, on humankind is, is extraordinary. What's uh, what's one piece of career advice? I know you have a ton of it, but you know maybe you can share one that you have learned over the years working with people or or from your own life that you think uh, can help others. Yeah, so I mean, this is a trend where where you know I've seen in the past, but it's just becoming more and more. Um, I think accelerated now is the. Uh, is the instant gratification from a career. There, I'm seeing people start a job and jump ship to another opportunity within not even a year, right? They're not even giving their 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 opportunity to learn from that founder or to learn from that team or to or to take their goal uh, to to the end. Like I'm just seeing a lot of jumping around, and I used to see that a lot back in the day where people were just you know, especially with my government friends, if I'm being quite honest, where they were looking for lateral promotions and how do I get to the top as quickly as possible? And there's something to be said about, about mastering your craft at a certain level, developing emotional intelligence, to developing self-awareness, and then moving. So it's not about taking 10 years to move, but I would, I would definitely encourage individuals to try to be more uh, retrospective in life in terms of how do I, what role did I have to play on this opportunity or this mistake? try to put the ego at the door, try to be very collaborative and give, and when you make a commitment, try to make a commitment that gives you and that company or, or the founder or whoever it is you're working with an opportunity to get to a next level, both of you together. And you'll be surprised as an entrepreneur, uh, if you do that, you know, most entrepreneurs who care will be glad to see, to help you in your career development, even if it means leaving that company. So giving a bit a little bit of loyalty, working on one's self-awareness, checking the ego at the door, you'll become a great leader and advance your career much quicker and much more sustainably and have bigger impact than just trying to move up for the sake of moving up without having developed those leadership skills. Amazing. Last one, who else should we interview on the Unsubscribe podcast? So there are so many amazing names you could bring on. Um, 
So I, I look back at our, I, I basically, some people that I've heard that were like, you know, really impactful in, in, in terms of speakers. I would say uh, you should bring Adrian Davis, who was a tech speaker. He's focused on sales and marketing as well, but really takes a storytelling approach, with I think, which I think is a lovely way to sell without selling and have a bigger impact. So I think it could be very valuable to your listeners. Awesome. Pascal, this is incredible. I love how you walked us through your entrepreneurial journey and the different stages and what you learned at each one to, you know, find your mentor who really encouraged you to to get into peer groups and start doing some executive coaching and then have, and then making the transition to being an executive coach and helping other entrepreneurs. I am super grateful uh, to, to have the opportunity to work with you and having learned so much from you. I hope that our audience today was able to, to learn from all of your wealth of knowledge. It's uh, I always learn so much when I talk to you. So thank you so much for being on today. Uh, thanks for having me. And always a pleasure to be able to share and help others. And uh, I don't know if anyone's going to notice, but we do have the same backgrounds. <laughs> they are they are real. Yeah. They are real backgrounds. Yes. Yeah, but, you uh, you, you inspire me so much, Pascal, even <laughs> down to my furniture now. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, but in all seriousness, again, this was awesome and uh, and always a pleasure. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Unsubscribed, a podcast created by Knack. If you enjoyed this episode of Unsubscribed, be sure to subscribe to my podcast and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. If you have any feedback or want to chat, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at marketing underscore 101. Cheers.